All right, we do have notes for today's class going around. Ecclesiastes is today. We're finishing Proverbs, though. We have one more or two more issues to look at. Who needs notes for Proverbs last week? Proverbs, anybody from last week? We won't give you a hard time for not being here last week. All right, Ecclesiastes. Who needs Ecclesiastes? They're right here. So, Frank, why don't you be in charge of handing to anybody who shows up in the next few minutes? Uh, Put a few out on this front row, because I'm sure unless there's a baby to take care of, my wife's going to be here. That's enough, yeah. All right, let's pray, and then we'll finish up with Proverbs. Father, it's good to look into your word, to consider what it teaches us. Help us to be people of the book, people who know the scriptures and live it out. We have to know the Old Testament better than we do, God. And, and I pray that you would impress upon us to study, to learn, to know this part of our Bibles, two-thirds of our Bibles, to know it more fully. And just to be enraptured by the truth that is there and what it teaches us about you and about us and about our Savior. So I pray that we might honor you in our study of the Old Testament today. Amen. All right, we're looking at the book of Proverbs Okay, Proverbs is in the section of the Bible called Wisdom. Wisdom teaches what? Does it teach you about the gospel? It might in some places. Is the primary focus of wisdom literature salvation? No. It's okay to say that, by the way. God has a different purpose for each book of the Bible. It's sort of surface level to say every book is the same theme. It's not. The book of Ephesians is not an evangelistic book. Does it have the gospel in it? Yeah. Could you evangelize from it? Yes. What's the purpose of the book? To grow the church. Not in numbers, but in depth and maturity. To teach the church doctrine and how to practice it. What's the focus of wisdom literature? What's wisdom about? How to live in the world according to God's wisdom. How to live in the world according to God's wisdom. Now, does that tie into salvation? Yes. But it's not the main theme. The main theme of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is about God saving a people for his own possession. Then we go into the historical books, and that's about God's dealings with his people, with his people, as we see them continue to fall away, even though they were given everything and blessed with everything. They fall away, and he calls them to repentance, and he calls them to repentance. And then, of course, we know the New Testament, the Gospels are about Christ, his person and work, the epistles or for the church, for the church to grow in the depth and knowledge of Christ, his person and work. And then of course Revelation is a prophecy of Christ's return. So wisdom, how to live in the world according to God's wisdom. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, this is great. If you're an unbeliever in Christ, then wisdom makes kind of sense to you because it's the way God designed the world. But who wants to do it? If an unbeliever is not going to want to live according to God's wisdom, so often we'll find them rebuking or or setting aside God's wisdom. And that's the foolish person that we see over and over in Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes. By the way, last week I said uh, we were going to do Song of Songs this week, but I was going the Hebrew order and the Hebrew Bible. uh, That is Proverbs, Song of Songs, then Ecclesiastes. In our English Bibles, I forgot that Ecclesiastes comes before the Song of Songs. I think we covered interpretive issue number one for Proverbs, right? There's no known order. It's unknown. But we have to say that God had something in mind when he ordered that book to be inspired and put together in a certain way. I think we were on this one just finishing up. What is Proverbs? Can you take a proverb and make it always true? I think it won't take you long before you realize 
It's not true in every single situation, but it is applicable truth to a specific situation. So if you understand all of Proverbs, then you can apply a proverb in a certain situation. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. 100% of the time, does that work? doesn't, does it? You can do all that you want. You can pour all that you want into a child, do exactly what we would consider biblically perfect, which nobody really does, and the child completely rebels. Because each person is responsible for their own sin, and you're not responsible for your children's sin. Now, we have to be careful with that because we could excuse ourselves as parents, right? I did everything perfect. Well, did you? But at the same time, we're not to spend the rest of our life beating ourselves up because our child went off and rebelled, and we generally uh, followed what we were supposed to do. So it's best to take these as applicable to specific situations, but you have to understand how to use the Proverbs, in other words. They're not untrue in any situation, but you can't use them as law, is the point. They're not law. Sometimes it'll say in the Bible that the righteous person is poor and the wicked person is rich. Is a righteous person ever rich? We've got a lot of us right here that would be considered rich in terms of the whole world. So that's not the point. The point is, in comparison, it seems like the wicked do better in life, even though they're sinners. But the righteous seem to struggle more in life, even though we're following God. So truth is applicable to specific situations. doesn't mean, of course, that these are untrue. It just means, let's be careful how we use the Proverbs. They're not law. They're not the Ten Commandments. Okay? So you've got to be able to understand all the Proverbs to apply any one proverb. They're tools. Wisdom book is a tool. It's a tool. It's God's truth given to us to use and how to live. Because if we take this idea that they're law and we think of them as commands, we're really going to struggle not only with Proverbs, but with the next book, Ecclesiastes. This is why people struggle to figure out what Ecclesiastes is doing, because they take it as law and misunderstand the nature of wisdom. All right, who is the speaker in chapter 8? I think that's where we stopped last week. Many have looked, even many Reformed theologians, and said this is the Messiah. Since everything is about Jesus, that seems like a good answer. So let's take a look briefly here at Proverbs chapter 8, 22. And who is this wisdom person? Proverbs 8, starting in 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, before his works of old. From everlasting I was established from the beginning, from the earliest times of the earth. Where there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. While he had not yet made the earth and the fields, nor the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he inscribed a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when the springs of the deep became fixed, when he set for the sea its boundary so that the water would not transgress his command, When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the world, his earth, and having my delight in the sons of men. So what's this talking about? When when did this happen? Creation, right? This is creation. Who is it that's possessed by God? Who is it that was there from the beginning? And some would say, well, this is the Messiah. Others would say, no, this is the personification of wisdom. Often we see personification. It's when you take an idea or concept and and give it personhood. You describe it in such a way that it seems like it's a person. We see this often in the Bible. We see this often in Proverbs with wisdom. In fact, what's the context of the book? Beginning of chapter 8. Does not wisdom call? And understanding lift up her voice. 
On the top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand. She's personified here, wisdom is, as somebody who's calling out to people. God's wisdom is calling out to people is the idea. And the foolish don't want to understand wisdom. They don't care. They would rather listen to the adulteress. The adulteress is the opposing viewpoint here in Proverbs to the lady of wisdom. And so we get to 22, and I think it's just continuing. If we just take the context, we're just continuing with the idea of wisdom. The Lord possessed me at the beginning. So what's the point of the proverb? And by the way, 9 starts out with wisdom too. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. She has prepared her food. She has mixed her wine. So the context is all about wisdom. Well, Christ is wisdom. He is wisdom. But what's this text talking about? Right? Of course Christ has wisdom. He is the wisdom of God. So we could, if you, you know, if you wanted to point to Christ from this, you could easily say, look, it says that in the New Testament that Christ brought us the wisdom of God, that he is the wisdom of God, and this is describing him. Okay, in a roundabout way, the whole Old Testament's describing Christ in some way. But in context, this is about God's wisdom. We need to seek God's wisdom. Why? Well, one, one reason is he used it to create everything. Why wouldn't you want to seek the wisdom of the creator? He is so wise, he could just speak and something happened. The boundaries of the land versus the sea happened. He created all things with his wisdom. So I'm going with the personification of wisdom. But if you read an old commentary, uh, you might find them saying that this is a description of the Messiah. All right, Proverbs 31. What's Proverbs 31 about? Well, the second part anyway. Let's just start in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find, for her worth is far above jewels. And I think the King James said far above rubies. So her worth is far above all the wealth that you could get. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and she will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings, she plants the vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. And he just goes on describing uh, this woman here. Verse 23, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So this woman is such an excellent, noble. She does things in such a godly way that her husband is recognized. Her husband is blessed because of it. She makes linen garments and sells them. And notice he trusts her to handle so many things that normally a man in the ancient world would handle. And yet here she is doing them. Not because she has to go and and make a living while the guy sits at the gate and being lazy. The idea here is that he trusts her to do these things. And she does an excellent thing in managing the house and even some parts of the business here. She makes linen garments and sells them. She's even running a little side business on her own here. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And verse 30 is often a quoted verse. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands. Let her works praise her in the gates. So the question is, is this a literal wife and mother? Or again, are we just talking about lady wisdom here? Are we just talking about sort of the ideal concept of what it means to be a wise woman? In other words, the, the question some women debate is, can this actually be attained? Can this actually be attained? Now, this issue is rather recent. Why would this issue be rather recent? This debate's not really an old debate. It's a more recent debate. Why? 
what kinds of movements have happened. Feminism, the feminist movement. And yeah, that creeps into the church. Even with godly people, we have all these movements like social justice right now and things that they, they creep in. You don't have to be a follower of those movements, but the ideas creep in and how we interpret our Bible. And so many good and, and godly women now would think this is an ideal, but not attainable. It's not like anyone ever existed that could meet these. I mean, this is too perfect. And sort of the, the implication is why even try, right? Just you're saved, you're a Christian, do your best, and don't get so hung up on this passage of what it means to be a godly wife. Well, let's go back here. I'm taking this as Solomon writing. I know we talked a bit about Lemuel, the words of King Lemuel, the oracle which his mother taught him. So his mother taught him about this. His mother taught him. Who's the king? Well, the only king that would be writing the book of Proverbs has to be Solomon in my mind. He's written all up through 30. 30 is this guy named Agur, but he's not called a king. He's the son of Jekeh, and Jekeh was the oracle, a prophet. And so I think we go back to Solomon in 31. But go to verse 10 again. An excellent wife who can find. This word here in Hebrew for excellent wife. Let's see. I've got a footnote here. You guys have a cross-reference Bible? It cites 12.4. All right. Proverbs 12.4. All right. No, no other passages? Does anybody have a Bible that cross-references Ruth? All right. We've got a Ruth passage too. Let's go back to Proverbs 12.4. And then we'll get to Ruth. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is like rottenness in his bones. So it seems like from previous Proverbs that this is something that a woman should attain to be as a wife. She should try. She should desire. What was a Ruth passage? 3.11. Lance, can you read that? Ruth 3.11. This is the exact Hebrew word, the exact Hebrew description that we find in Proverbs 31.10. Worthy. Does anybody's translation say excellent there? Woman of excellence. So the same Hebrew phrase is used there. Woman, wife, it can be used either way in Hebrew and the same as in Greek. But the idea is Ruth was being called that by her future husband, Boaz, right? And who is Boaz in relation to Solomon or Ruth? Who's Ruth in relation to Solomon? Of the line, right? I think it's great, great. Is that right, Frank? Great, 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 great grandmother. So not only is this word being used to describe an actual woman in the Bible. Some have suggested that the teaching of who Ruth was as an excellent woman, excellent wife, was passed down all the way to Solomon, and he includes it here. Whether that's the case, we don't know, but it is the same exact Hebrew phrase. So this is a real, literal wife and mother. This can be attained. Now, like anything in Scripture, we cannot be perfect at what we strive to do in Christ. But the idea here is an excellent wife, whenever it says an excellent wife who can find, and it describes her, well, this is what a wife would want to be. This is the, not, not every single detail, but in general, the teaching in general here in your slice of life is that, wife, you should seek to be these things towards your husband and for the glory of God. It's just like in the New Testament when it says, those who aspire to be an elder must meet these qualifications. Well, other than teaching, those qualifications are all godly. So every godly man in the church should want to be like that. And even a godly a woman should want to be like that. The qualifications of an elder are just a list of godly attributes. Well, it's the same here. This is maybe not perfectly attainable, but what is perfectly attainable this side of heaven? We can't use that as an excuse. The passage here is to guide women, wives, especially into 
being an excellent wife. And what a great description. It's often read on Mother's Day. and I think it's a good, it's a good passage. Ruth is the example. Just read the book of Ruth. Any questions on Proverbs? Oh yeah, that would say Christ had been born, right? At creation. So the idea is wisdom is brought forth into the creation when God started creating the world. He had wisdom, of course, before that. But in, in time and space, wisdom existed because God brought it there. And it's really a key to the, the wisdom books, right? Where does wisdom come from? Well, we see it in nature. We see it in humanity in general. But it really comes from God. If something is good and true and just, that's New Testament language, right? Focus on whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, whatever is just. These things are good. Focus on these things because they're heavenly. Where do do the good things in the world come from? Even when an unbelieving sinner does something that we would consider good, where does that come from? That's God's common grace. And so we could say wisdom is common grace that he put into creation. He put there for people to enjoy. So now we're on to the book of Ecclesiastes. I've got a scrambled screen. Just a, bad, just a bad connection to my computer, more than likely. Ecclesiastes. Where do we get the name from? The name comes from Hebrew. Kohelet. Kohelet is to convene an assembly, or, or more likely here, the idea is a preacher. The word means a preacher over an assembly. And he calls himself the preacher because he's preaching a message. And the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation from the Hebrew, it became the, the Greeks used the word Ecclesiastes, or the Jewish people who translated it into Greek. Ecclesiastes, it's a, participate, a participant in an assembly, particularly the speaker who's participating in an assembly. An assembly gathers together to hear somebody talk, and in this case, he's the speaker. So we have the phrase ecclesiastical, especially when it comes to Roman Catholic, but ecclesiastical just means having to do with the church. Ecclesiology, that's the theology of the church. Ecclesio, ecclesiology has to do with the church. And it comes from the Greek word for ecclesia, which means an assembly, which became the name for the church in the New Testament. What is a group of Christians who gather together to do things, to worship, to praise God, to study the Bible, sing songs? It's an ecclesia, an assembly but specifically an assembly of believers gathered for a purpose. Now, this is Old Testament. doesn't mean we have a New Testament church here. It just is the idea of assembling together to hear the words of a speaker. The genre is wisdom. We just spent some time talking about wisdom. General application is what we're looking for here in Ecclesiastes. What does this teach us? Proverbs are lots of little slices that you put into Uh, certain places that you need to use those proverbs. That's what a proverb is, a pithy wise saying. And you have it on your tool belt to use. This is different. This book is more about a a general view of life in this world. Life in the fallen world. What should we do with life in a fallen world? An accursed world. And a world full of sin. And a world full of death. How should we think about that? I always think of R.C. Sproul talking about how he got saved from a verse in Ecclesiastes. It's where the tree falls. And it's it's nothing really. It's just a tree falls in the forest. And he goes home after hearing that verse or reading it. And he ponders the futility of life. That life is really meaningless without God. And that leads him to eventually pray and repent to God and be saved. And I think it's a funny story because... People often say we don't need the Old Testament. You've got to unhitch from the Old Testament. We covered that in home group this last week for you guys that were there. 
Hopefully everybody got that question right. We don't need to unhitch, right, Scott? We don't need to unhitch from the Old Testament. But here's, here's a guy, R.C. Sproul, who becomes a major force in the modern Calvinistic evangelical movement. And what's the verse? He grew up knowing the Bible. What's the verse that really pricked his heart and made him start thinking about things? A wisdom verse from Ecclesiastes about a tree falling in the forest. Well, who wrote this book? Solomon or... And now all these commentators argue about, we, get, we just can't know. Look at one uh, one, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then he goes on to talk about vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Which is really the theme for the first few chapters of the book. Well, it doesn't say Solomon there, so we've got to throw that out, right? Can't be Solomon. Is that how it works? Is that how logic works? How many sons of David, king in Jerusalem, how many people wrote a passage or a chapter or a book of the Bible that could have that title. Who's the only son of David that we know that wrote scripture? Solomon. And he also wrote Proverbs. And I think Song of Songs, but we'll get there next week. And then this one's right around there, grouped together there. It's got to be Solomon. He, he's the, the king of wisdom. And that's really number one for interpretive issues. Who wrote this book? I just brought this interpretive issue up now instead of waiting. Here are the suggestions. Solomon, many will take this as his repentance. He's, he's repented. Remember in Kings when we left Solomon, where was he? First Kings. What happened to Solomon? He was wandering from the Lord. He was straying from Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. He was chasing after other women, multiplied his wives, who brought all the false gods into Israel, which all the people worshipped, and Solomon ended up going after false gods. In fact, it's what eventually leads all of Israel going into captivity, is that Solomon has introduced paganism into Israel. Most of the kings after that will follow him in that, and the people, of course, follow their leader. So, if it is Solomon, is this kind of his last book that he wrote, indicating what he learned about sin? what he learned about trying to live a sinful life. Some say, look, this is sort of like Solomon, but just an editor. Others say it's an anonymous wise man. Some say, well, we have a change in the book somewhere, so it's two wise men. And then the last says, no, we got three changes. It's three wise men. This is what people do when they study the Bible and and just want to say, hey, we can't know. Since we don't know, we'll just start making things up. And, And they try to see where changes happen in the book. So I'm going with Solomon. This has traditionally been what believers have thought. Solomon wrote this book. And I do think it's a, it's a late-in-life book. I think he's an old man who's run from God. He's backslidden for many years. And at the end of his life, he realizes his mistakes. He realizes that God gave him so much wisdom, and he's just squandered it. And he's going to write this book to teach people, to teach God's people on what he learned. He learned a lesson. He learned a lesson that it's not worth it. That sin's not worth it. It's not worth it to, to have all these blessings that God has given you and then just run off and, and sin with these women and these false gods. And he repents later and turns back to God. So the date of Solomon's reign would be the date that it was written. We don't know specifically, but somewhere between 970 and 931 BC because that's when Solomon reigned. All right, what's the theme? When we talk about theme, we're looking at things that show up a lot. The message, really. What's the message of the book? It's hard for us. There's some debate about the message of the book. That's the other interpretive issue. But it has to do with warnings, vanity, 
life lived apart from God is futile emptiness. The futile way versus the fruitful way. So it can seem that the world is vain. It can seem that the world is futile. But if you're fearing God, if you're following God, if you're obeying His commandments, well, then you're going to have a different view on life. And I just recently read back through Ecclesiastes, and you definitely see a change. Uh, we'll look at the outline in a minute, but you'll see a change near, uh, about halfway through the book, a little past halfway, I think it's chapter 7 or 8, where he stops talking as much about meaning, you know, meaningless, vanity, futility, and starts talking more about God. So why did Solomon write on this topic? That's the purpose. Why is it here? In spite of the seeming futility involved in man's existence. Even though everything seems meaningless, we all just die, we work hard, we get nothing out of it, we just go to the grave. The wise man should fear God and enjoy life as the gift from God. Ecclesiastes has a lot to teach us about enjoying life, the things that God has given us. Even in common grace, what has God given us in this world to enjoy? And if you're wise, you'll fear God and enjoy those things that God has given you. So an outline. This is just a suggested outline. Everyone debates an outline on Ecclesiastes. It's not quite as hard as Proverbs because Proverbs is lots of Proverbs that seem to be thrown in there. We know there's an order God intended, but the Proverbs can change topics pretty quick. Here it's, it's difficult to section out things. This is one outline I found that I like. If I was to preach through this book, I might change my mind, but I think we're going with this one for now. And it really separates out the first few chapters, especially chapter 1, which sets up the whole point of the book. So the first point in the outline is the problem that all is vanity. This is a problem. After the fall, after the curse, we have a world that seems like it's meaningless, it's futile, it's vanity. So let's look at one one. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does, under the sun? So that phrase, under the sun, is going to come up quite a bit in the next few chapters. And it means on this earth, in this life. What's the point of this life? It seems like everything is vanity. And so he, he introduces the topic in these first three verses. This is what the book is about. It's, it's seeking to answer the question, what advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? And then one twelve through 6 is proving that this world actually is fallen, that this world is hard, that there is sin affecting this world. It's his proof. See, people read, I think people read one twelve through chapter 6, and they think, oh, this is a, a command, this is... This is law. This is telling us just the way things are. It seems very pessimistic. Who wants to read Ecclesiastes? It seems pessimistic. But he's just proving his first point, which is all is vanity. So 112, we'll just read a bit here. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. So of all people, we should listen to the king that God has set up in Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven, under the sun. It is a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. It seems hard, in other words, that God has allowed the fall to occur. I've seen all the works which have been done under the sun. And behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. That's another phrase that comes up a lot in this book. After wind. What's wind? Can you grasp the wind? Can you capture the wind? Can you hold the wind in your hands? You can't. It goes where it wishes. You can't do anything with the wind. And so if you're trying to hold the wind, you're holding nothing. You're just holding air. 
And he's saying, it's like striving for the wind. You, you can't contain it. You can't capture it. It seems to be meaningless. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be countered. So how do you count the wind? How do you, how do you hold on to it? I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. That sounds like Solomon to me. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. If this is Solomon, then that would be the case. He was given all this wisdom, and then he also went into madness and folly. I realized that this is also striving after win. So it seems like if you work hard and do the right thing, you end up with nothing. And if you go and do whatever you want and act foolish and, and act mad, act crazy, then you end up with nothing. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. There's proof right there. You, you seek for wisdom, and you just end up feeling worse about the way things are, because you learn about life, and you experience it, and you get to see what happens, and it just seems like it's for nothing. So he's going he's gonna to sort of prove this case out all the way through chapter 6. Chapter 3, you know, somebody turned this into a song, right? A time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant. Who was that? Who was alive during that time? Who was that? The birds. I always want to say the beetles, but the birds. Okay. Did they go through the whole, all, all uh, two through eight? Or just a, seems like it's just a few verses they repeat a lot. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down. So there's a time to do different things in life. But look at 311. He's talking about God. Let's go back to 10. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything appropriate in its time. Hmm, this isn't as pessimistic as we thought. God has designed everything to be a certain way. That's what the little poem there was about that came before this. He also set eternity in their heart. That means we are eternal beings and we want to live forever. Yet, so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. So there's a limit. We're limited. We don't know what's going on. Much of wisdom literature centers around this idea that God has all wisdom and we don't. And so the end of the story is trust in him, fear God. You're not wise, he is. If you want to learn wisdom, then follow God. Verse 12, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. So the gift of God can't be bad. Seems like all these things are just um, for nothing. We work hard and we could lose it. Some storm could come through and wipe out your business. Rioters can burn down your store. Your home can be destroyed overnight. You can die and have nothing, of course, because you can't take it with you when you go. But yet God has given these things. They're his gifts. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and there's nothing to take from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. That which has been already and that which will be has already been. For God seeks what has passed by. Could it be that God has set up the world in a certain way that we should strive to know him? That we should fear him? Could it be like Romans 1 says that we have no excuse? That God has clearly revealed himself in the created world? That God has clearly revealed himself in our hearts? This many argue is a book about joy. But it takes a lot of study to figure that out. It takes some study to see it. So moving on, just skimming chapters here. Uh, verse 4 talks about evils of oppression. Verse 5, now we're back to dealing with our relationship with God. Guard your steps, uh, chapter 5, sorry. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. 
for they do not know they are doing evil. Don't be foolish when you come before God. Back then you would bring your sacrifice to the temple. Don't, don't offer a foolish sacrifice. Listen. Listen to the teaching. Learn how to do it right. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. Watch your words before God. For God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God and he just keeps on talking about how to live towards God in a certain way. And so we're seeing God come up more now. But he's still proving his statement, which is all is vanity, that he's mentioned in one, chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 6, There is an evil which I've seen under the sun, and it is prevalent among men, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. Seems like God blesses you, and then somebody comes and takes it away. If a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things, and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he, for it comes in futility and goes into obscurity, and its name is covered in obscurity. It never sees the sun, and it never knows anything. It is better off than he. Even if the other man lives a thousand years twice and does not enjoy good things, do not all go to one place? Do we not all die? What's the point? Why does it matter? He's raising all these questions. Why does it matter? Now in chapter 7, we see a, a change through the rest of the book. How are we to live in such a world? This is the way that things are. This is the way that things have been designed. This is the way God has made the world after the fall. What are we to do? Well, a good title for that section is The Prescription for Living with Vanity. How do you live in such a world? So 7 through 9 is coping in a wicked world. How do you cope? 10 through the first part of 12 is giving us counsel for the uncertainties of life. And the conclusion, which sums up the whole book, is at the very end of Ecclesiastes. So look at the beginning of chapter 7. A good name is better than good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. So he's putting some Proverbs together in a poetic form here. 15, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. Do not be excessively righteous. Do not be overly wise. Why should you ruin yourself? Do not be excessively wicked and do not be a fool. Why should you die before your time? So he goes on to sort of give commands. Commands on how to live in such a world. What do we do as people of God in such a world that is seemingly vain, empty, futile? 19, wisdom strengthens a wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. And he goes on to describe wisdom throughout the rest of this chapter. Chapter 8, he talks about obeying rulers. This is sounding like the New Testament in many cases. Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, What are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. What New Testament passage does that remind you of? Obey the words of the king. Romans 13. Romans 13. But in this case, I think the assumption is it's a king installed by God in Jerusalem. Romans 13 even broadens that out. It's talking about a ruler, a pagan ruler. 
but it's God's authority. The king here is God's authority, so we ought to obey him as long as he's not telling us to do something the Bible tells us not to do. Chapter 9, men are in the hand of God. For I've taken all this to my heart and explain it, that righteous men, wise men, and their deeds are in the hand of God. That's a good place. You want to be in the hand of God. Man does not know whether it will be love or hatred. Anything awaits him. So better to be in God's hand, in other words. If all this is a surprise to us, if all this world is wicked and sinful, what better place would you want to be except in the hand of God? That's the best place. Follow God. Fear him. Follow his commandments. The, the preacher here is getting to the application of his message. He proved to us in the first two-thirds of the book, our first half or so, that the, um, the world is a sinful, wicked place. Now, what do you do about it? Now he's telling us. What are we to do about it? 9-2, it is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked. He's talking about death here. For the good, for the clean, and for the unclean. For the man who offers a sacrifice, and for one who does not offer a sacrifice. As the good man is, so is the sinner. As the swearer is, so is the one who is afraid to swear. And he goes on to just contrast, really, the fact that we're all going to die, and what should we do about it? Verse 7, go then, eat your bread in happiness, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already approved your works. If you're following God, if you're with Him, He he has approved you. It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want, but stop worrying about everything. Do not worry. Doesn't God give you food every day to enjoy? Doesn't God give you a place to live to enjoy? Go and enjoy those things. It's not your job to sit around and worry about what's happening in the world. That's what God does. That's His prerogative. God takes care of the world. Jesus summed that up, didn't He? Do not worry, for He takes care of the sparrows. Not one sparrow dies without God's sovereignty being involved. He knows the hair on your head. Don't worry because you can't increase your height by even a centimeter by worrying. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I again say unto the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors. Neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to the men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. So everybody's headed to the same place. We're all going to die. We're all going to lose everything. It's not about the things of this world. It's not about the world itself and how sinful it is. It's about living rightly before God. But it just takes him a while to get to that point. In the Old Testament, it takes a while. It's not the Apostle Paul here where at the end of every paragraph, you know, he's giving you the application. More counsels here on the uncertainties of life. We'll just skip to the end here. 12, 9 through 14. What's the book about? Here it tells us. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. So he, he taught people what to know. And he pondered, he searched out, he arranged many proverbs. Oh, I wonder what king, son of David, king over Jerusalem, taught and arranged many proverbs. Who could that be, Chris? Solomon, but it doesn't say his name there, you know. It is Solomon, yes. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads. And masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. That's God. So that, this is a great description of wisdom. What are the goads? What are those? Who knows about goads? They have to do with animals? Ox? Anybody know what a goad is? Yeah, it's, it's the, the thing on the cart, on the front of the cart, that would poke the ox if he stopped. And the cart keeps rolling. Bam. Runs into him. So it goads him on. It goads the... The animal's on. Well, what does it say here? 
wise men are like goads. They, they, they show us how to, to go. They encourage us. They exhort us to go on. And, and if you master these collections, it's like well-driven nail. If you're building something, Andrew, and you don't drive your nails in very well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? It's going to fall apart, right? I've got lots of stuff that I buy made out of wood. And, you know, we had an old table about 10 years old and it just fell apart. Not because the, the nails weren't driven well, probably because it rotted in the, in the rain. It wasn't sealed. You have to drive your nails in well to hold things together. And that's, that's what wisdom is about. It, it holds your life together. It's, it's a well-driven nail. These wise sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. Oh, man, those of us who love books, this is not the verse we like. Right, Frank? You don't like this verse. Stop reading so many books because it's endless. This is true today, certainly in Solomon's day, right? How many books were being published then compared to now? You can't even keep up with it. Try to read all the books that are published in a year. You'll spend the rest of your life probably reading all the books that are published in a month. And most of them you won't want to read. And that's the point. Not that you shouldn't read other books than the Bible, but it's just it's pointless. It's endless. Seek the, the wisdom here. Seek the wisdom that God has given. Because the writing of many books is endless. And if you devote yourself to what the world is saying, you're wasting your time. The conclusion, here it is, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That's the point. Fear God and keep His commandments. Oh, I don't know what to do. The world is so evil. You know, there's this going on, and i got to speak out, and i got to get involved. And Well, maybe in certain places and areas you do have to get involved, but it's not your job to run the world. That's God's job. It's not your job to worry about everything. What is your duty before God? Fear Him, keep His commandments. Sounds so legalistic. Does it? What did Jesus say? Because the Old Testament's all about law and the New Testament's all about grace. That's what you hear, right? Is that true? What do you think, Greg? You're shaking your head now. It's not true, right? Isn't, isn't there grace in the old? And isn't there law in the new? Because what did Jesus say? Yeah, he didn't come. He came to fulfill the law. Yeah. Did Jesus give commands? What did he say about those who obey his commandments? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's all that Solomon's saying here. If you fear God, then you keep his commandments. And that's the way to live a good life, a joyful life. Fear God and keep his commandments. There's nothing better than that. You think the world is a sinful place. As an unbeliever, it's going to feel to unbelievers, they say it feels like hell on earth. All that they have to go through. Well, it's not really like hell. It's going to be much worse, right? But it is harder. The way of the sinner is hard, Proverbs says. Life in this world is hard, but with God... It can be joyful. With God, we can realize the good things in life. With God, we can see the joy in what seems to be vanity, what seems to be futile. Key passages, uh, we already looked at chapter 1, verse 2. Solomon, he's the wisest, the richest, the most influential king in Israel's history. And he looks at life under the sun. And from the human perspective, and he declares it to be empty, futile. The word there means empty. doesn't seem to be anything there. Solomon went after the world for a long time in his life. He chased, he talks about women, he talks about wealth, he talks about foolishness. He experienced all that a king could experience back then. And it, it just proved to be empty. And he learned to fear God and obey his commandments. That was the lesson. Sort of reminds me of a king in the book of Daniel. What did that king learn? Nebuchadnezzar. Not to be prideful, he learned to fear God. 
He was humbled. What's that? How to eat grass. That was God humbling him, right? You think you're so important? Let me show you how to eat grass like an animal. And then, of course, the ending, which we just read. So the key passages are the beginning and the end, because they're the, the thing that encapsulates the book. It tells us what the book is about. We sometimes dive into this book and can't figure it out, because we don't slow down and read context. What does is, what is he set out to do in the beginning? And what does he say the book was about in the end? Helpful resources. One of the professors at the Master's Seminary, now retired, has written a commentary. Look at this title. Ecclesiastes, the Philippians of the Old Testament. What's the theme of Philippians? Joy. Ecclesiastes is a book about joy? Yeah, but it's in the context of the ancient world. It's in the context of Solomon and Israel and Solomon's life. And it is. But you have to study it. You have to work harder. Wisdom is like that, by the way. It's an exercise. You have to work at it. Proverbs aren't just easy. You read a proverb and it makes total sense. Ecclesiastes is not easy. Song of Songs, you know, we laugh about, wait till we get to that next week. You know, I tell my wife her neck is like the, uh, what is it, the, the tower, the cliffs, and, and her teeth are like sheep coming over the hill. What is that all about? Is that, that's a good romantic thing to say. Well, it is in that time. It's a sign of wealth, of beauty. And so Ecclesiastes is set in a time. We always have to remember the historical context, the literary context, where does it come in our Bibles? and what's going on in, in the world at that time. And we have to ask ourselves, what kind of genre is it? It's a wisdom book. So Dr. Barrick, Ecclesiastes commentary, he also has on his website for free all of the notes that he taught through this and audios. All right, what is the purpose? So we already dealt with number one, interpretive issue. Who's the author? I think that's easy. That's Solomon. The purpose, it can be hard if you read through this once or twice, and there's a lot of debate. Some see it as a negative book. Many scholars say, look, this is a negative book. It's the futility of human wisdom. The whole book is just about how if we live life on the earth, it's futile. And especially an unbeliever, one who doesn't even follow God. Others say, no, it's positive. It's actually teaching us about God's wisdom, but it's sort of an indirect way of doing it. I think right now I would fall a lot more in line with with B. I'll just let you know where I'm going here. I think this is God's wisdom. I think it's here for a reason to teach us about God's wisdom and how to have joy in this life, even though we live in a fallen world. It's hard. This is not the kind of book where we're going to be like the Stoics and just be tough and ignore everything. This is not the kind of book where you can just, you know, go mad, go crazy over how bad and wicked the world is. He's saying, look, the world is this way, but it was that, it's that way for a reason. Now, here's what we can learn from it. And if we follow God, here's how we ought to live in such a world. And so when there's two options, there's always a group that says, hey, let's combine them, negative and positive revelation of godly wisdom in response to the futility of human wisdom. And I guess so. I mean, that's really an overall positive message. So I think B and C are about the same. Here's the way the world is. It's wicked. Here's the way we ought to live, which is godly and good. All right. Well, that's it for Ecclesiastes. Any questions? Over any of the wisdom books we've covered so far? We have five minutes for questions. Comments? Who likes Ecclesiastes? A few of us. A few of us rare birds in the room, huh? The more I read it, the more I like it. I read through it real quick, like, like in uh, two sittings uh, earlier this week. And I think I liked it more that way than I ever have. If you just take it in little bites, it doesn't always fit together. You read it through fast, and you'll see a lot more connections. Who likes Proverbs? It is necessary. That's why, that's why it's in the Bible, right? 
He put it there for us to learn from. We can't just skip it and say it doesn't matter. Yeah. Claire, what's your favorite wisdom book? Proverbs. Do you go through it with your kids? Especially the ones, uh, we, we always do the ones on discipline a lot with the kids. We're actually going through Proverbs right now as a family. And I make sure they repeat the ones they read about. A father's discipline and a shame to their mother when they're foolish. Those are important. All right, we got one for Proverbs, one for Ecclesiastes. Frank, this Frank and this Frank. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. All right. No one likes Job. That's my favorite wisdom book, Job. Job's like a big Ecclesiastes to me. It's sort of connected to the theme of Ecclesiastes. Do you have one? Somebody was forced? Proverbs? Job and Ecclesiastes. You're picking two. Yeah, they're tied. All right. Any questions over these books, over the Old Testament? Why was the first five books of the Bible written? What's the purpose? Genesis through Deuteronomy. What's the purpose? Who can give me a good summary? Yeah, it's a history of, we could say a history of how God saved the people for his own possession. And then the historical books are what? If we were to summarize them, Joshua all the way through 1st, 2nd Kings and Chronicles. What are those books about? Ezra, Nehemiah. They're ordered differently in ours than the Hebrew Bible. But you could say what God has done and being faithful to them. But what's that a response to? What's going on? So God has saved this people. And then what happens in those books? It's a continued downward fall, especially after David and Solomon. There's a downward fall in Joshua. God shows up. Shows his grace and saves them. Same thing in Judges. Same thing in 1 Samuel. Same thing in 2 Samuel. Now we have David. The one who's going to point to the Messiah with his reign. God's blessed king. David has a great rule. He's still a sinner. Solomon comes along. is given all this wisdom. And he runs off and does all kinds of sinful things. His son takes it to a whole other level there. And divides the empire because he's so foolish. And then it's back downhill all the way until they get thrown into captivity. Then we have wisdom here. Wisdom is God's wisdom in the world that we should follow as believers. We should learn from it. It's not specifically about what God has done in the past, although that can be there. It's not specifically about what God's going to do in the future. That's what prophecy is involved in. It's how to live in this world right now as a follower of God. Then we have prophets. That's going to be next. After we do Song of Songs, we'll take a break this summer because Frank will be teaching an awesome class two weeks from today. Spiritual disciplines. I got to put in a little plug. Frank's going to walk us through what we should be doing in our daily life. We talk a lot about what you should do when you come here, how the church is organized. That's an actual sermon today. What do we do in our daily life as a Christian? What kind of disciplines should we be doing? He'll be going through that week by week. In the fall, we'll start with the prophets. First prophet Isaiah will go all the way through the end of the Old Testament. What are the prophets about? What's the message of the prophets? Repent. Repent. And if you do what? Restoration will happen. There's a future hope. There's judgment. God has taken them away into captivity, or he soon will if you're talking about Isaiah. Repent, he says, and there's a restoration coming. And that restoration points to the Messiah more than any part of the Old Testament before the prophets. So come back next week. Song of Songs. The Jews said that only somebody over 35 could read the Song of Songs. But if you're 18 or over, we're good. It's really PG-13, but we'll call it PG-18. For Song of Songs, next week, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for our wonderful time in the Old Testament, for teaching us, for helping us organize this Old Covenant book. And let us love it. Let us read it, study it, Apply it in our life. We ask that you would do this 
for your glory. Amen.